Shall we begin? Let's begin now. Hello, I'm Richard Hattersley, and welcome to No Account for Taste, a podcast from accountaweb.co.uk. This week on the show, as KPMG faces a £1 billion lawsuit and constant audit scrutiny, we will question just how long the Big Four firm can remain viable. And with governments set to outline the, their plans to overhaul audit imminently, we'll also ask what can be done to clean up what has been described as a scandal-ridden industry. We'll also be rounding up the biggest headlines on the counterweb over the past week, including the latest household name to challenge an IR35 ruling and more on MTD penalties. Joining me to discuss all this and more is the counterweb's editor-at-large, it's John Stockdyke. Hi, Dickie. It's uh, great to be here again. I, I always look forward to our, our fortnightly chats. You know, we, don't, we don't get to talk like this enough, do we? <laughs> not at all, John. Not at all. And we are delighted also to welcome to Accountant's Corner this week, Chartered Accountant, Director of Tax Research, Professor of Accounting. It's Richard Murphy. Hello, and thanks for asking me. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us, Richard. Later on in the programme, we'll be discussing uh, what can be done to clean up audit. But first, let's see the top stories creating a stir on Accountant Web over the past seven days. Um, the third most read story this week was the news that sports broadcaster and former presenter of BBC's One Show, Adrian Charles, is the latest TV and radio presenter to face HMRC in a tax tribunal over IR35 in a case which was worth uh, £1.7 million in tax liabilities. The tribunal considered that the hypothetical contracts were part of Charles's business and that the IR35 legislation did not apply here. The majority of account web readers in this case were very much on Agent Charles' side. Richard Price being one account web uh, reader, for example, said that HMRC should just let the past go with regard to IR35. They have got so... They, they continued and said they have got such a lot of work to do in so many other areas. It's not like Adrian wasn't paying tax. He was, and as far as we can tell, he was pushed down the route of working through a PSC. Uh, John, what's your thoughts on this story? Well, this is just another one of the kind of endless com conveyor belt or tri tribunal cases we uh, seem to be fielding. I mean, it, I, I think it always the celebrity factor always sends you know the um, the, the traffic through the roof. Uh, <laughs> we are, I hate to admit it, but you know we are an increasingly celebrity and influencer uh, driven driven community. It seems so. So our our readers can't get enough of it but it's it's always it you know it does good because it sort of crystallizes the um the debates around the issues you know we replay the same um over overarching you know what exactly is the nature of the employment con so you know you get to play kind of you are the um the tribunal judge uh but i i'm i'm with our our member who was saying why doesn't hmrc kind of relax a bit on this it's you know they they seem to be particularly devoted to bringing cases and, and usually hmrc sort of claims it's got a 80 percent success rate at tribunal but i we used to run an ir35 scorecard and i'm I'm sure they're nowhere near their batting average on, on, on ir35 cases so um yeah sort of that that's that's a interesting question or proposal to put but um yeah i'm just wondering why they put 
the taxpayers through that, their own legal teams, and us through, you know, why are we just going round and round the same cycles? Richard, I'd be curious if you've got any thoughts on, on this particular matter, anything what John just said. Look, I, I've always got a thought on issues like this, um, and I've been writing around this area since about 2007, when, you know, those who will recall the Arctic Systems case, I actually wrote a paper at the time suggesting we should entirely rethink the way in which small business taxation worked. And I still think that, because I still think we've got it fundamentally wrong. We're using a 19th century mechanism, the limited liability company, in a way that was never intended for use in the 21st century to try to solve the problem of contracting, which is a actual part of life for many people and which can be abused by some and it's you know, let's start from the very beginning we need to rethink what the limited liability company is for people who are you know the one or two person contracting firm um the llp is in a sense a more flexible tool a more sensible tool it does require that tax be paid at profit on profit so it, the national insurance issues could be resolved around it but certainly you can't avoid national insurance very easily in an llp i know i'm a partner in two um, and i pay my national insurance on it do i get some of the advantages of being in trade yes would it still be possible that for the revenue to challenge that this is a disguised employment yes because there are such things where clearly people are abusing the rules but look at adrian Charles' situation yeah he was forced into this in the first place he didn't have a choice he had multiple uh, companies he was working for and multiple sources of income he had an agent he was clearly able to have some independence of thought even though he couldn't substitute himself which is hardly surprising you know if you look at the man there isn't a substitute readily available but that doesn't mean that he wasn't in trade the revenue just don't understand and i really find this annoying and i'm going to say this very loud and clear the revenue really don't understand two things one is what the nature of trade really is and what it's like to actually have the doubts that go with it including the will i be paid or not dimension to life which is one of the great characteristics of being self-employed i think they miss that and the second they don't also understand the accounting for this i mean i'm running a case at present you know i might be a professor of accounting now but i'm still a chartered accountant i've still got a practicing certificate i'm running a case which has been running for not as long as adrian charles but for some time on the basics of double entry bookkeeping which frankly the revenue do not understand um which is astonishing and so there's some very big gaps in their knowledge and understanding where i think frankly the revenue senior management are beholden to stand back and ask the question do we really understand what we're doing are we training our staff and what the reality of life for people out there who are genuinely self-employed and in trade and the reality of life that they face and are we taxing them on the substance of what really goes on i don't ignore the right of the revenue to challenge abuse of course i don't i you know, reserve their right to do that but they really are getting that line between what is sensible litigation to take and what just looks vexatious wrong. But we're we're also struggling with with you know these is it is it seven or is it more sort of badges of of trade and all the mutuality of obligations and substitution clauses and, and things. Um, you know whatever happened is it the Taylor review? I think it was you know five six seven years ago maybe five years four or five years ago but you know i thought there was there was a whole policy announcement there would be a, a consultation and a statutory employment test would be would be uh, brought forward and enacted you know and at least that would you know could it uh, if, if you had the simple you know not not the one you go online to get hmrc's view 
But if they could have just followed through with that, it could have saved a lot of these cases, I'm sure, even though they're all retrospective. I mean, does anyone know where that went? I, I suppose the, the there are many excuses, but um, I don't know. There it's, are it's, many it's, excuses, John. I think you're right. But w it hasn't happened. Um, I'm also a little concerned that the revenue just don't seem to have this understanding that, again, in the reality of life of being self-employed and i have been now since ooh, 1984 um god that's a long time isn't it um that there is this give and take which is an inevitable part which is not present in the employment contract but it's incredibly hard to define just precisely what it is that is the difference um between being at risk as a result of your own trade and enjoying the protection of an employer and the greyness between the two does exist and I just don't think they get that and that's what worries me could any code overcome that entirely no but I do think they have to have some sensible doubt in their own mind about it and they clearly didn't use that judgment in this case is my opinion I sincerely hope they don't appeal it although I suspect they will well, let's move on to another big issue. We've had IS85, and it wouldn't be an account web podcast if we didn't talk about the second most read story this week, which is, of course, making tax digital. And in this, this is the news that this week uh, we learned about new penalty regimes for making tax digital, which will apply for VAT periods beginning on and after the 1st of January 2023. Uh, taxpayers who refuse to engage with MTD for VAT process completely may find they are charged a minimum penalty of £400 for failure to submit a VAT return and HMRC also has the power to charge a penalty of up to £500 for failure to keep the required VAT records. Account Web readers reacted to the story by accusing MTD of being a quote penalty generator while another reader quipped maybe if they get enough penalties uh, they may be able to afford to go back to work in five days a week um, John this is uh, uh, this story has certainly um, captured the attention of the account web uh, readers this past week we've heard quite a bit about MTD penalties and I think this is um, th this extra stage is um, one which I, I, I sense a lot of readers were expecting anyway they were. I mean, uh, Rebecca Cave, who it's 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 one of her, another one of her, real sort of definitive. Here's another issue you need to worry about. Articles which do always get <laughs> straight through to our readers. Um, she made the point that that HMRC is in kind of the process of ra changing and and theoretically rationalising it, its penalty systems uh, for all the different taxes. And in the, and we have the MTD filings. There was there was supposed to be the the points system uh, to accrue points um, I, I should have done my research for that to, the, to see where that is um, but as, as far as the consistency goes um, you know there this is changing around MTD and 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 this will be so so the you know VAT returns themselves are, are quarterly um, yeah it's, it's funny it does seem to be upping the stakes for taxpayers again and 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 that's that's you know you've got to begin to to have some sympathy for the people who talk about penalty farming you know the, everywhere you look now is a different kind of penalty popping out of the woodwork and um that point system was supposed to allow for 
you know, a little bit of you know you you have a couple of chances you know three strikes and then you get the penalty but uh, that doesn't seem to apply in this episode the thing that caught my attention from coming at it purely from the techie view which is how i always approach these issues um was that hmrcd need, needed more time to code in the differences and and it's supposed to align with mtd but as rebecca said why not why not hold back the introduction until mtd itself comes in so so could, could it be bringing it forward is <laughs> front loads some revenue earning opportunities i don't know but and there was some really well informed some, some uh, amusing sort of swipes at hmrc but also quite one member came in with a really well informed um uh thing looking at you know why it might be causing hmrc difficult to code this and, and again they've they've got so much other coding activity they're up to that that they're really sort of falling behind schedule there but as i said i don't think it's primarily a tech issue but you know you poke anywhere and there's always software will be, be behind it all richard i know that you've um you've always got a few thoughts on making tax digital um what's your what's your thoughts Let, let's start with the penalty aspect here but and any kind of larger thoughts about the the rollout of the regime as well Oh, I remember a few years ago giving evidence to the House of Lords on making tax digital, um, sitting there and just saying, this is not going to work. All the claims that the revenue are making are unsubstantiated and they will not collect the extra tax that is owing and they will be imposing a massive additional burden on taxpayers and the taxpayers will not see as a consequence the claim savings that the revenue said they would, which were based upon an assumption that people who are at present completely unaware of how their businesses operate, but if only they did making tax digital, suddenly they would have an effective accounting system that would transform their business profitability. That was the literal underlying business logic that HMRC put out at the time they first talked about MTD to justify the changes. And it was all... Um, I will use a technical term, it's CRAP. Um, CRAP is a term which I use with students and it stands for completely rubbish approximations to the truth. Um, and what I mean is there simply wasn't any substance to the claim for the exercise in the first place. It was simply outsourcing the revenues work onto taxpayers so they had less to do. And it has resulted in even worse VAT and, in due course, other penalty regimes than we've had before. The opportunity for charging penalties clearly increases because we have multiple penalty-generating events a year. And because of the way in which software, with its, in a sense, intolerance, which is, I think, what you're referring to in part there, John, um, about you know, deadlines and so on, can easily impose a penalty without any human intervention required as to whether this is reasonable or not. Now, when we look at the things for which there are no penalties in life, um, and which many politicians seem able to get away with, the idea that actually non-compliance with a relatively minor VAT issue is going to give rise to automatic and significant penalties that may be a major part of the net income of the taxpayer who has to voluntarily maintain VAT records on behalf of the government, because after all, they don't personally benefit from VAT, is really quite draconian. Um, it pushes the balance of responsibility in the wrong way. I've never believed in MTD. I don't think it's going to deliver real benefits for business. Obviously, I believe in good software. I use software. Um, unsurprisingly, um, and John will recall over many years that we've discussed software. Indeed, once Accounting Web even sold some software I wrote. That's a long time ago. Um, but this is just pushing the boundaries too far. And it's very hard to see this as anything as yet another exercise in 
basically the revenue trying to reduce their headcount, reduce their costs and enforce up those of the taxpayer in a way that's quite unfair. Um, I'll go back to the point I made, in a sense, with regard to IR35. Do the revenue understand what it's like to be in business? Do they understand the hassle of this stuff? Do they understand how this has to fit into everything else, particularly if you're a very small business? No, I don't think they do. And that, at a very senior level, I'm not talking about the revenue staff, I think they get it. But at a very senior level, they simply don't seem to do so because they've never worked in small organisations where this is literally down to you late at night filling in the VAT return. And I find that deeply annoying. There are muted cheers probably from uh, <laughs> listeners to the thing, Richard. I think I think you, uh, you're not you're not always flavour of the month with the accounting web members, but uh, I think a lot of them. No, are... I'm all in favour of tax justice, John. I'm all in favour of actually going out, and I'm all in favour of the revenue going out to create a level playing field where the tax cheats are taken out of the system. But frankly, not a single tax cheat is really going to be found by this. Yeah. This is non-compliance by people who are identified as being taxpayers who probably are actually already trying to comply, have got a system which they don't want to update, which they don't understand how they are actually going to become MTD compliant because it is actually quite complex for them. And a lot of people are IT phobic. You may not be, I may not be, but let's be honest, we all know that lots of people are. And these people aren't voluntarily non-compliant. They're just actually not able to handle, handle the complexity of this. In many I, cases. I, I was with a group of accountants yesterday and, and kind of that they were two or three of them were you know we were just having lunch and moving towards the consensus that actually the way the regime is developing you know the unintended consequences is is they were concerned a lot of clients who, who started running into issues would just go you know they get a client is saying well we're going to have to clean this up and get you compliant and you know after the initial meeting they would just disappear and and you know we're going to see people you know actually an increase in non-compliance as a result I fear that might be right John I really do fear that so that's again this is the wrong stick that the revenue are using there's no carrot there's only stick and it's the wrong stick and it could have perverse consequences and I don't want those perverse consequences I want a level playing field where everybody pays the right amount of tax now right is actually a bit subjective when it comes to tax although the revenue will claim there's an absolute figure of course there isn't we all know there's a degree of frankly discretion available inside any self-assessment any limited company tax return as to what is claimable what is not what is disallowed what is allowed because the law is a gray beast and now i expect people to use best judgment and i don't see why the revenue shouldn't but to actually punish those who are trying rather than actually look at those who just opted out altogether is wrong and they should be going at the total non-compliance not this absolutely the wrong measures to tackle the problem we face. The problem we really face is not errors, which are a few billion a year. And I'm interested to note, literally just before we started recording this, I noted that the, the revenue are noting, or the Department of Work and Pensions are noting today, £2.8 billion of benefits are not being claimed by pensioners. Well, you know, they're not going to recover £2.8 billion by actually doing MTD, frankly, in my opinion. But they could recover a lot more by going against the untaxed economy, where there are some very simple things they could still do and aren't, like automatic information exchange from banks. And they're not doing that. And my question is, why are they attacking the existing taxpayer who's trying rather than going against the completely non-compliant person who's nowhere near the system at all? Wrong focus, yet again. Richard, I remember when you appeared in front of the House of Lords um, 
the committee and there was one reaction on the counter web which I always remember when someone said uh, Richard Murphy he's my hero I think, <laughs> I think well make my day there you go um so let's move on to the most read story of the past week the author of that is on the line today richard murphy this is your story on how long can kpmg last so um richard you looked at the precarious outlook for kpmg and uh, actually audit itself was involved there um we're coming to the we'll come to the audit aspect of this a little bit later just the in general outlook for audit but in the piece you looked at the effect the scrutiny dished out at kpmg with such an alarming regularity let's face it is having on the firm and its viability in a market where professional credibility is everything as you said um, and we're, we're talking about this as well. It's worth noting as KPMG just a couple of weeks ago came out with such strong annual results as well. So Richard, talk us through um, your your thinking in this piece then. What is the outlook like for KPMG? Look, I'm worried about KPMG. I am partly worried because if you go deep down through my CV, you'll discover that in 1979, I became an article clerk, as we still were in those days, at uh, what was then Pete Marwick Mitchell & Co. in London. At that time, I think the biggest office in the biggest firm in the world. Obviously, KPMG is not the biggest office in the biggest uh, biggest firm in the world anymore. But I um, mean, so I trained with one of the constituent members of KPMG. So, uh, of course, I have a certain degree of affinity still with the firm that I left in 1983, if I am honest. Um, they told me that if I kept my nose clean for a decade, I had a chance of becoming a partner. And I thought there was no chance I keep my nose clean for a decade. So uh, took the invitation to apply for a P45 that I thought was implicit in that and went out on my own. Now, KPMG is in trouble. I don't think anybody can pretend otherwise. Yes, I see the latest accounts, but clearly we don't know the degree of provision in there with regard to claims that might be coming up. And we don't know the depth. Let's also be honest, as, because these things are pretty opaque and the accounting of the big four firms is pretty opaque, if I am totally honest, with regard to, for example, their self-insured um, professional indemnity uh, companies, because they do self-insure themselves. Um, how deep is the pocket? Could it pay out the claim that is being brought against KPMG from the official receiver with regard to the audit of Carillion for over a billion pounds? Well, I guess they could, but that's going to wipe out profits for a very long time and it's six months revenue. And that's you know, something that most firms would find difficult to sustain. Now, in practice, we also know that very few of the claims of this sort, one, ever reach court, and two, are ever settled in anything like the amount of the initial claim. So it's highly unlikely that KPMG will be coughing up that sum. Although there are massive potential claims against them, particularly with regard, in my opinion, with regard to the payment of what I considered to be potentially illegal dividends by Carillion in the last couple of years or so of its life, which should have been subject to audit review. And I think in those cases, frankly, the official receiver has got a very strong line to take. Um, so the company's in trouble, both financially, and I doubt it's made provision for the full cost of any potential settlement, or if it has, we don't know where, um, because it could, of course, be in the professional indemnity accounts. Now, if we then look at what that says about the firm, there comes a point where when you can have so many claims, Silent Night is the other particularly difficult one with regard to KPMG in recent years, where frankly, the question is with regard to whether the conduct was well fraudulent. 
Um, and as a consequence, um, KPMG is not at present uh, open to take government contracts um, because questions as to its conduct have been raised at such level that the government isn't going to be rewarding KPMG right now in a very lucrative market for which the other firms are enjoying as a result. They must be laughing. But because there's so many questions about the audit credibility of KPMG, only 61% of its audits were considered acceptable, if I remember the figure correctly, in the last FRC review of its audits, and, and so on, we were just wondering, can this firm do the basic tasks that it was set up to deliver? Um, and any reasonable person would question that. And if I was a person looking for a new auditor, um, and I was in you know, the FTSE 350 sort of market, why would I want to go to KPMG to endorse my accounts, is the question that I'd be asking myself. I would, A, want a massive pre uh, reduction in you know, the, the cost to compensate for the fact that the credibility being provided is lower than average, because there must be some doubt now amongst many people's you know, minds about, is a KPMG audit reliable uh, when the FRC and litigation suggests otherwise and audit failures suggest otherwise to some extent and secondly will they be there um, if there is such a pressure but I also look to the point from the other end of the scale I mean that's from the client point of view where as a former practitioner I mean you know, of a firm you know, when I was a senior partner of a firm for some time what mattered most was our credibility the client had to believe that what we were doing is right. Because remember, most clients, most of the time, of most accountants, cannot appraise the quality of the work that the accountant is doing. The simple fact is they're buying expertise. If KPMG's expertise is in doubt, the absolutely fundamental product which they're selling is questionable, and the client's confidence in them must be therefore questioned as well. So at that level, they're in trouble. At the other end of the scale, and I think this is just as important, I look at young people who are looking at a career in accounting, um, and I know them, uh, I see them, and the question is asked, why would I want KPMG on my CV when KPMG is not maybe the highest quality firm that I could train with because there are question marks over the quality of its work? And it's a perfectly fair and reasonable question. Now, is KPMG going to have to therefore pay a premium on salaries to attract people? Maybe. Is it not going to get the best candidates? Maybe. I think that's quite likely uh, that they're going to have a problem recruiting. Is that therefore going to deny them the lifeblood of any of these large firms because they are utterly dependent upon a supply of 21, 22-year-olds coming out of university who are going to stay until they're 26, 27 and provide the fodder which drives the underpinning of the audit market for these companies? Um, is that going to therefore be a simple challenge for them? I think so. Um, and is there a potential risk that whatever audit regulation changes take place, they're going to be subject to significant scrutiny. But let's just look at another aspect of that. If we move to a position where joint audit is required, it's still a possibility. We don't know what the government is going to say, and I know we're going to discuss audit in a minute. But suppose that's the case. Will there be other firms who are willing to join audit with KPMG in the event that KPMG is 
under scrutiny with regard to its own audits? Or will they think that the risk is too high because they're going to spend so long reviewing the audit papers of KPMG on the sections that they've done that, frankly, it's uneconomic to undertake work with them? Again, all of those question marks are there. And to me, they suggest there must be a really big question mark over the potential for KPMG to survive. I'm not saying it won't, but I'm saying it needs some drastic action on its part to increase the confidence in the quality of the work it's doing now, or else its future does not look good. And with it, then something else arises, and that is, of course, the question about, well, can we have an audit market with only three firms? Um, we've always assumed not, um, because of the conflicts of interest that arise so often with regard to auditor rotation already, would the elimination of KPMG from the market end the whole large company audit market that we now suggest exists whether it's a market or not is a good question but whatever it is the arrangement for large audit could it come to an end if KPMG fails so many open questions and KPMG seem to be intent on persistently shooting themselves in the foot well John uh, Richard's put forward quite the uh, the, the uh, uh, argument there for KPMG's future but we, we've seen a number of these cases over the the last five five or six years and it doesn't look that great for the for them, does it? No, I mean I, th I think in sort of that reputational issue, you know, within 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 the pr the profession and on the site, you know, we're we're, and Richard's probably articulated the case, you know, from someone with with kind of an internal, you know, a perspective drawn from from being within the uh, the the um, firm, uh, you know, so so it's a felt case, and you put it very well, Richard. I mean, the thing on the reputation side, um, we're we're very used. To on accounting web, you know, picking up the regular big four audit embarrassments and the fines, and and, and note that they have been getting progressively lower. It's it's so the fines are getting you know each you know it's a, every year or two there's another biggest fine ever case. Um, mm. What I'd like to thank you for in, in that particular article, Richard, is, is I guess because of the you know it's not quite rolling news, but you know they come by and go by. And and you know oh, there's a Deloitte, there's a PwC, there's a KPMG. What what you did was just kind of go back uh, four or five years and <laughs> just keep the score that that you know there were you know KPMG may not have been getting the biggest fines, but the the succession of them, the the, the and the way they're building up, and it is like I think you almost averaged them out. You know, was it you know once every fifteen months there seemed to be up up yes. another one. Um, you know, this is not a good look and and not a good good trend to see continuing although I, I do wonder we've we've both probably railed about the supine nature and, and, and ineffectiveness and, and uh, you know contrasted the UK Financial Reporting Council with with you know the sort of activities the the US SEC gets up to and how how you know they will jump more firmly is do you think the succession of cases are, are we you know mo maybe moving over onto the audit market audit regulation is is the FRC sort of flexing its muscles bits and sort of getting into practice for when it, when if and when it suddenly turns transforms into Arga, and is going to be this rougher, tougher, new, robust regulator that that the government envisages? So, you know, I'm wondering is is that an aspect of why we're getting a few more of these these high profile cases in recent years? Well, look, there's no doubt that the FRC smelt the coffee. Um, it was being stuffed right under their nose. If I can be pretty blunt about it, um, that they were miserably failing for a long period of time to regulate the audit profession. 
um, and that the penalties being imposed for failure were tiny. I mean, totally disproportionate to those, again, which we were actually seeing from the professional institutes imposing on some smaller firms. Um, so there was clearly a failure on the part of the FRC for a long time. And they have noticed that. Um, the FRC has been going through a period of, well, attempt at transformation. And I think it's finally filling its board and has got a new chair and, um, you know, is actually obviously under new management. And I welcome that because it needs to be good. Uh, I don't think that when we finally get to Arga and who knows when that will be, I am in quite regular discussion with uh, the Department for Business um, on audit reform, if I'm honest. I have made a number of submissions to them and I do have discussion with them as well. And I'm not willing to necessarily discuss all the content of that um, because I don't think it would be appropriate. But um, right now, I don't think that we're going to be seeing that um, next round of proposals for them coming out um, very soon. Um, although they promised it in January, they promised it in February, they promised it, in fact, by the end of last year. Well, I don't actually think we should hold our breaths for a little while longer either, um, because I think they've got too many other issues which are distracting cabinet ministers for some minister uh, reason quite now, uh, right now. So we're not going to see that change in a hurry, but the FRC is definitely deciding that it must, ha whatever happens, begin to react appropriately. It's certainly recruiting new staff. I don't know that the balance of those is absolutely correct, because I don't see the profiles of all of them. But it does appear to have a willingness to tackle issues in a way it hadn't. Now, the big four will complain that they're simply being picked up on things, if you like, retrospectively. It's a bit like the comment we made earlier about the revenue. You know, are they still battling on tax cases which are seven years old? And um, is the FRC battling on audit cases which are still you know, out of date? And are they picking up practices which have been eliminated? We don't know that, of course. You know, every single KPMG audit in 2021, or on the 2021 accounts, so we're right in the middle of peak audit season now, in a sense. You know, reporting is coming up for many companies. Um, maybe every one of those is perfect. I mean, one can hope so, and that actually the problems have been eliminated, and it will. Be, there will be a lag before we find that out. So maybe we're still hearing, you know, yesterday's news. Um, but um, I had a horrible sort of moment of Fleetwood Mac coming through my head when I said that for some reason. Um, but just a metaphor. But anyway, I mean, that may be what's happening, that we're hearing that. And maybe everything's all right now. But I don't doubt it. Um, I don't think the systemic changes are there yet. And in fairness, that is what KPMG's leadership are also saying. So I mean, at least we're hearing that music yeah. from them. But then also, you but, know, to tie it back to your, your earlier comment that, that you know, there is kind of a structural weakness within the whole profession you know at the very highest level um and uh how deeply does that that you know if if if, if that if the if the listed company market sort of begins to crumble because there's not you know because all the firms there are conflicting each other out or unwilling unable and and or too risk averse to work with each other um you know how, yeah, how profound how, how you know what what is your diagnosis of, of the more profound problems around audit Look, the audit problem is, is actually, I mean, I can't separate the audit problem from the accounting problem. Um, 
and I've written a number of papers on that. They're on my uh, blog, um, Tax Research UK. I've written some things called audit briefings, and some of them are intended to be quite provocative, as if um, I'd ever be such a thing, but they are. And I'm, I've questioned, you know, what is the relationship between audit and accounting? I think they're inseparable. I think a lot of the proposed audit reforms are complete nonsense because they presume that one can audit a set of accounts without asking whether the basis on which the accounts are themselves prepared is reasonable. You have to accept that IASB accounting standards are the right standards in the current audit framework. And what you're confirming by saying the accounts are true and fair is really that they are consistent with that IASB standard. Well, I don't think they are. Um, I don't even think the IASB standard is compliant with UK company law, by the way. I think it actually, by refusing to require that large companies split their reserves between those which are distributable and those which are non-distributable, i.e. realised and unrealised, I don't think they even meet the basic standard of a credible test for solvency, which is the whole basis on which company law for accounting was first created. So at an absolutely fundamental level, audit reform can't work until it overcomes this problem. I mentioned it with regard to Carillion. I think it paid out illegal dividends because the data that should have been looked at to test whether the dividends paid were really viable or not in terms of company law was not present in, present in the accounting. And the firms are happy to overlook that. Um, nor are they willing to change it, by the way. They, I, I know, are fighting back very heavily against having this information disclosed in audit reforms, um, although my colleague Adam Lever at Sheffield and I have been arguing very heavily to the contrary and have, in fact, published a paper explaining how it would be quite easy to demonstrate what the difference in reserves is. So we are fighting at a very fundamental level what the heck accounting is about here. And we have auditors who are not willing to stand up and say, actually, true and fair view means that you can rely on this information to make decisions. Whereas true and fair view has become a box-ticking exercise, this information complies with the requirements of the International Accounting Standards Board, dominated as it is by the big four firms, in effect. And so we've got everything wrong about this relationship in the first place between accounting and auditing. And secondly, the auditors have forgotten that it is their job to really express a professional opinion, standing back and looking at the whole thing and saying, does this stack up or not? And I don't think they're doing that. I think they are enmeshed in the detail and forgetting their professional obligation. And there's nothing, unfortunately, that I see in the proposed reforms so far published, whether we look at Tyree or Kingman or Bryden or the government's version, and I've read them all um, from cover to cover, all sad the person that I am. I answered every single one of the questions in the 232-page government consultation last year on audit reform, um, which was a feat, I think. Um, and having read them all, frankly, my answer is they missed the point. Um, the point is we need to ask, is the accounting framework that we're using appropriate? Not just appropriate for the current need, but also appropriate, and I'll hint at work I'm doing here, the future need of are we going to be producing accounts that actually show the true impact of climate change? And I don't believe we are anywhere near that. And if you think there is anger at auditors already with regard to audit failure within the existing accounting framework, wait until we begin to move into sustainability. Because already it's apparent that the front end of accounts, the spiel 
that is being put out by the directors on what sustainability means, and the back end of the accounts, where apparently sustainability means that we'll carry on as we are and burn the planet in the process. I summarise grossly, but not really unfairly. Um, and when it's apparent that the auditors have failed to reconcile these two, which is their legal obligation and it is their duty to report upon, then watch for the litigation because people are really going to let rip. And I think there are plenty of people with deep pockets who are willing to do that now. Well, Richard, just to uh, to, to bring this topic to a close now, um, we've had some suggestions, some signs of what may be included, I guess, in, in that reform. The government did release um, the, the uh, shaken up the audit uh, white paper quite a while ago. Is there enough there really to actually solve the problem? Is it going to be robust enough to um, sort out the issue at hand here? Or um, are, is, is something bigger needed to be done? What kind of state, what's the future of audit going to look like? Well, I, I mean, I think for a number of reasons it's not good enough. First of all, I actually think the assumption is that the existing audit market will survive. In other words, there will remain a big four. We've already questioned whether that is a valid assumption, and I'm not sure it is. I mean, it may not be KPMG that goes. Who knows what the next scandal is going to be? I mean, the work that I've done um, with colleagues at Sheffield and in other universities, we've looked at the FTSE um, over a decade, from 2009 to 2019, and over 20% of companies in the FTSE paid out more in the way of dividends than they had earned in the way of profit over that period, some by a significant margin. Now, okay, losses distort some of the calculations, I accept that. But if we look overall, over, you know, it's maybe a third of the whole FTSE is, is frankly, Paying out excess dividends and has done for a long time, leaving the concept of hollowed out firms. Auditing as it stands doesn't appear unable to do anything to prevent this payment of excess dividends that is leaving the UK and worldwide corporate sector, frankly, exposed to massive risk of failure because of over leverage, which assumes that the world will continue as it is, that we won't ever have a war, that we won't ever have an increase in interest rates, that debt will be affordable forever, all of which assumptions are open to question right now. And so the underpinnings of that review are wrong. And then there is the assumption, and I know that the government is not willing to look at it, that the accounting standards are simply inappropriate in the first place, and therefore audit is bound to fail, because frankly you can audit bad data to the very best quality and still end up with rubbish accounts. And my fear is that accounts are not asking, answering the questions that people are now asking. And the people who are asking are not just the investors I mean, it's the actual people who save with the investors, because the investor in this sense is seen to be the pension fund, but it's the pensioner who's actually left out of pocket. It's the employee who's left out of pocket. It's the local community that ends up without a major employer where there once was one who's now suddenly facing literally devastation to that community's life as a consequence. All those people are being ignored by the audit process as well. So audit is asking the wrong questions of the wrong set of accounts in the interests of the wrong people. Apart from that, everything's fine in the world. <laughs> well, we'll leave it on that note. So thank you very much, Richard. Thanks very much for your time. It's been a very fascinating conversation today. And thank you, John, as well. And a big thank you to everyone for listening. For all your news from the world of accountancy, join us as ever on accountweb.co.uk. But until next time, I've been Richard Hattersley, and we'll speak to you again. Bye for now. <laughs>